Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what it looks like when those so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, exciting news about a groundbreaking event in Southern California. The first ever symposium, not only on decommissioning San Onofre, but addressing the ongoing dangers of nuclear waste. It takes a global view of the corner we've painted ourselves into regarding the deadly nuclear leftovers at every reactor. Gene Stone, one of the organizers of the event, which was just announced today, will be on to tell us what to expect and why it is important for those who live in proximity to a nuclear reactor, for those who don't think they live in proximity to a nuclear reactor but really do, and especially for members of the media who deserve to understand this critical issue so they can report on it. Then we'll have a talk by Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health on the impact of Fukushima radiation on fetuses and infants in the United States immediately after the nuclear disaster began. These stories, plus our weekly radiation protection tip, will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, August 13, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Well, there's no place else to start this week except in Japan, where the news continues to be indescribably awful. At Fukushima, just as TEPCO admitted two weeks ago, large amounts of radioactive substances have been seeping from that facility since the nuclear disaster began 27 months ago. Now Japan's top nuclear regulator has said TEPCO lacks a sufficient sense of urgency for this crisis. TEPCO admits that the groundwater is emptying into the facility's man-made harbor at a rate of 400 tons a day. In a nod to common sense, the company assumes that all the water has been contaminated at an underground trench or pit by the sea that is connected to the number 2 reactor building. More than 5,000 tons of radioactive water still remain in that pit, and it has been measured as containing 2.35 billion, with a B, becquerels per liter of cesium, and 750 million becquerels of other unnamed radio substances, including strontium. Here's where mainstream media has actually started to pay attention. Ann Thomason, who is chief environmental affairs correspondent for NBC News, reported on air, each day for 882 days, nearly 72,000 gallons of radioactively polluted water has flowed into the Pacific Ocean. TEPCO has started pumping contaminated water into temporary storage tanks, a move that many say is a monument to mismanagement. Dr. Edward Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists says, It's leaking like a sieve, and groundwater is seeping radioactive contaminants into the groundwater. Tetsuo Ito, head of the Atomic Energy Research Institute at Japan's Kinki University, said, The risk of overflow is as serious as the meltdown of reactor fuel rods that's already happened. Now the protective barriers that were installed to prevent the flow of toxic water into the ocean are no longer able to cope with the groundwater levels. Radioactive, contaminated groundwater has already risen to almost two feet above the barriers. According to our friend Iori Mochizuki and his blog, Fukushima Diary, a TEPCO spokesmodel stated, In case of severe rainfall, 
If the groundwater increases more than the capacity of the pumps, we cannot do anything. Recent torrential rains in Fukushima province have caused groundwater levels to rise, and the Nuclear Regulatory Authority has warned of the approaching typhoon season. TEPCO is now talking about installing technology to freeze the groundwater, or at minimum put a barrier to prevent the water from entering the ocean. But according to nuclear engineer Ani Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, that is two years too late and will be too late by the time they construct the barrier. But the barrier also causes another problem. If the water can't go anywhere into the Pacific Ocean, it is going to build on site, which means that the nuclear reactors themselves will become unstable. The water can pull underneath the nuclear buildings, and if there is an earthquake, in fact, the nuclear buildings could topple. Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear agrees. During an interview with Tom Hartman on The Tom Hartman Show, he said, one of, Tepkin's, one of TEPCO's mitigation measures, which is not very well thought out, was building a seawall by freezing the ground. And guess what? The groundwater is piling up behind the seawall, just as Arnie said. By backing up the water under the entire site, they are now turning the ground into quicksand, and that's causing less stability, more instability. There are structural engineers and nuclear engineers warning that warning that this may be the final straw that's needed to topple not only Unit 4, but perhaps some of those other destroyed units with their high-level radioactive waste stored in pools 50 feet up in the air. If Unit 4 spent fuel pool goes down, enough of that fuel is still there, it'll be on fire. As regards seafood, nuclear experts are calling on the U.S. government to test West Coast waters and Pacific seafood sold in the U.S. in the wake of Japan's alarming admission about ongoing radiation leaks. Dr. Arjun Makajani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, said, We still don't know how contaminated the water is and some sampling of the U.S. West Coast waters would be useful, as well as making the sampling of some fish public. I definitely would recommend that the FDA and EPA increase their vigilance in terms of monitoring of food. We'll have information about the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network's petition to the FDA on this very subject at the end of this program. Workers at Fukushima have reported to an Australian broadcaster that they do not have much faith in TEPCO's ability to handle the situation at Fukushima, and they claim that another accident is inevitable. Workers say that TEPCO knew all along about the constant flow of radioactive water into the Pacific that they have known for 27 months, but did nothing. Japan's nuclear watchdog has described the leaks as a state of emergency. Fujimoto-san, a 56-year-old decontamination worker at the remains of the Fukushima nuclear plant, has said, We work at the most dangerous place in Japan. There are still reactor buildings we haven't gotten into yet, so there's always the possibility of another explosion. And if that were to happen, we, the workers, would be the first victims. I fear that a lot. He went on to say, Not only that, I work 12-hour shifts and I only get paid 11,000 yen which equates to $125 per shift, or only slightly over $10 an hour. He also says that if TEPCO caught him speaking to journalists, I'd be fired for sure. Speaking out is an act of suicide. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, 
So is working at Fukushima for TEPCO. Nuclear hot seat. Num nuts, num nuts, num nuts, num nuts of the week. Here's this week's number four, four, four. Japan has established a new research body which it hopes will bring together international experience in the decommissioning of nuclear power plants. Plans call for the Institute to set up a research facility near the damaged Fukushima Daiichi plant. What could go wrong? Of course, if they're smart, they're going to issue all the participants there lead jockstraps and gas masks and a coupon good for a visit to make a deposit at a sperm bank or the in vitro fertilization clinic of your choice. Takukia Hattori, president of the Japan Atomic Industry Forum, which has led a call for such an initiative, said the world's eyes are now turned to the decommissioning of Fukushima. Decommission? You decommission a standing nuclear reactor, not the wreck of one. More languaging to pay attention to. Number three, three, three. This is from the Corbett Report, which apparently is an independent news and information resource based in Japan. In an interview that took place on the August 10, 2013 program at 29 minutes in, David L. Smith of the Geneva Business Insider says... The people of Japan are responsible for the poisoning of the food chain of the world. If they don't stand up, who can stand up and do anything about it? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Geneva Business Insider person. It is not the people of Japan, 80% of whom oppose nuclear. It's the business insiders twisting information, manipulating the population, committing nuclear genocide on the whole country, if not the whole earth, meaning all of us, for the sake of what? Greed? Money? Power? Don't blame the Japanese people. They are being gamed left, right, sideways, inside out, over and above. Coming up for the numbnuts of the week, silver medal, Yukatero Naka a former General Electric engineer who spent 40 years at nuclear plants in Fukushima Prefecture, is calling for the creation of a huge island off the Fukushima Number 1 nuclear power plant that will be made from contaminated soil and rubble and building facilities for decommissioning, as well as for disposal of and research on debris. You're going to dump contaminated soil into the ocean? This report goes on to say, A high level of radiation is not expected on the island because it will be covered with a large amount of soil. And where are you going to get that clean soil, pray tell, when there isn't enough of it to spread on land in those people who have gone back to their communities in Fukushima Prefecture? Finally, it says, All possible measures will be taken to prevent an adverse impact on the ocean by the building of this island. Oh, yeah? When you get that one under control, do let TEPCO know how you did it. But the ultimate, number one, gold medal with a radioactive bullet, numbnuts of the week, goes to a video that Al Jazeera put up showing people flocking to Iwake City during the holidays to get some relief from the heat by bathing in the ocean. That's right. The beach in Iwaki is less than 20 miles 
from Fukushima Daiichi with its out-of-control radiation levels in the water. But the Japanese are going, you know, how bad can it be? One visitor said, I don't mind going swimming, but I will only let my grandchildren paddle. Like that makes a difference? We will have a link to this outrageous video up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. And that is this week's Numbnuts of the Week, times four. Now I have a story out of Japan that is just so evil. I could not call it a Numbnuts of the Week because that would diminish the seriousness of the story. It is a propaganda video that was created in Japan specifically to be shown to children to convince them that they have nothing to worry about from Fukushima. They created a little crude cartoon showing the Fukushima plant as having a stomach ache and having trouble with its poop. But when you have trouble with your stomach and you have trouble with your poop, you know that after a while you get better, and it wasn't that bad to begin with. I swear, this was like something that Joseph Mengele would have created for the children of Auschwitz to convince them that going to a concentration camp was just the best time in the world. After all, kiddies, after all, kiddies, Arbeit macht frei. This is unconscionable. It is also, I'm sad to say, brilliantly conceived, psychologically astute, and made me want to weep. It, of course, will be up on the website as well. Over to the United States, where we got blindsided today. By a two-to-one vote, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia has ordered the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to complete the licensing process and approve or reject the Energy Department's application for a waste site at Nevada's Yucca Mountain. The court said that the nuclear agency was simply flouting the law when it allowed the Obama administration to continue plans to close the proposed nuclear waste site 90 miles northwest of Las Vegas. That action goes against a federal law designating Yucca Mountain as the nation's nuclear waste repository. But it also represented a healthy dose of nuclear good sense because Yucca Mountain is directly above the largest remaining aquifer in the United States, and the soil between it and the water is porous. But that made no difference to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. There are three judges on it, and with a majority of one, the opinion was put forth. The two eyes were from Judge Brett M. Kavanaugh and Judge A. Raymond Randolph, both of whom were appointed to their posts by Republican presidents. Chief Judge Merrick B. Garland dissented in the case, and he was appointed by a Democratic president. Hmm... Isn't that interesting? I wonder what that could mean. South Carolina and Washington State had both filed lawsuits seeking to force the NRC to rule on the Yucca Mountain application. This is the height of NIMBY because both states have large nuclear waste sites. Savannah River site in South Carolina and, of course, the Hanford nuclear site in Washington State. So they want to be able to dump their nuclear waste someplace else. Of course, the transport, if it could even take place, would be a mobile Chernobyl. 
The capacity of yucca is 75,000 tons, which is already the same amount that we've got stored at our nuclear reactors without them creating any more. There was an equipment malfunction at a U.S. nuclear power plant in Wake County, North Carolina. The Shearson-Harris nuclear power plant declared an alert early on Thursday, August 8th. Duke Energy said that the staff at the plant was ready to activate sirens located throughout the plant's 10-mile emergency planning zone if needed. Kim Crawford, spokesmodel with Duke Energy, said, There was a little bit of smoke, so we had to declare the alert. So sorry, Kim. So sorry to have troubled your pretty little head over smoke pouring out from a nuclear power plant. And finally in the news this week, an aging nuclear power plant in Taiwan has been leaking radioactive wastewater for three and a half years, according to a report released by the government's watchdog group this week. The report by Control Yuan said spent fuel rod storage pools at the site have leaked since December of 2009. And nobody noticed? Taiwan Power Company has failed to find the causes and the leaks continue. This news comes amid debate and parliamentary fistfights over the future of nuclear power on the island of Taiwan. We'll give you round three as soon as it appears. Oh, enough of this nonsense. Let's get into the interviews. Here in Southern California, we focused intently on shutting down the San Onofre nuclear reactors for safety reasons. And we succeeded. Huzzah! Then we started learning about the complexities of the decommissioning process, the problem of what to do with the spent fuel, and some disturbing information we did not know about the nature and potency of the rad waste stored in open spent fuel pools directly on the ocean, less than five miles from an underwater earthquake fault, within a 50-mile radius of more than 8 million people. It ain't over yet, folks. So the major San Onofre groups and activists got together and, well, I'll let Gene Stone tell you. Gene is with Residents Organized for a Safe Environment, otherwise known as Rose, and is one of those who was deeply involved in the San Onofre fight. Gene Stone of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hey, thank you very much, Libby. Tell us a little bit about what the situation was that led to the decision to come up with a symposium on nuclear waste. After San Onofre shut down, we started immediately looking into the waste problem and see what was uh, out there. And then Friends of the Earth uh, report came out about San Onofre and nuclear waste, and that got us a little piqued our interest, and we realized that we hadn't really used this argument in the fight effectively, and so we needed to find out more about it. So once we started looking into it, we found out that California Edison had already collected $2.5 billion, and within a week they had asked for another $2 billion. And what was this money being requested for? They were saying that it was going to, the $2.5 billion they had already collected was for the decommissioning process when that time happened. They're now saying within one week that it's going to take 60 years to decommission and another, they're right now asking for another $2 billion for that process. 
And the day that it closed, Arnie Gunderson was there, and he was telling us there was no way that it would take over 10 years to decommission a plant. And so immediately Edison's asking for 60 years because they know they can get paid for all those years. Again, it's like a variation on the stage play in the movie The Producers, which is that you can make more money from a failed nuclear plant and the decommissioning process than you can from even keeping one running. That's right, because you can charge not only the rate payers, they think, but they also will be getting paid, and most people don't know this, they will be getting paid by the Department of Energy to store the nuclear waste because there is no national repository. So they will be making money three ways next to Sunday, so to speak. Wow, we didn't we do them a favor when we shut down San Onofre? <laughs> anyway, let's get back to this latest battlefront, because you're right. When we were focusing on shutting down San Onofre, that was the focus. We weren't looking through that because we had no idea when we would be on the other side of that part of the battle. So with the growing awareness that we have this waste problem, that we have a nuclear waste jump now, that's what San Onofre has turned into. What were some of the actions taken by the activists in Southern California to start addressing this part of the problem? Well, we formed a new group called Coalition to Decommission San Onofre. We're going to do an oversight committee, first of all, of the whole process. We're looking for official sanction from the NRC, but whether we get that or not is not going to stop us. So what we found out so far is that without notifying the public, the NRC gave California Edison permission to use high burn-up fuel, which is twice as radioactive and even maybe several times more radioactive. depends on how long they burn it and how long they use it. So not only do we have the normal problem of the spent fuel rods that were used uh, there prior to 1996 stored, uh, we have this other problem with this high burn-up fuel that may have to be in the water cooling tanks for as long as 15 years before they could ever put it in dry cast storage and move it. And these are the open spent fuel pools? They're open to the environment or they're they're on the uh, ground? They're, they're on the grounds. They they are within a building, but uh, yes, there's no top on, uh, on this. This is where they're constantly pouring water, putting new water in. And of course, the other issue that we were aware of is that there's four times as many fuel rods in there as those tanks were originally built for because they've kept reducing the space that they keep them in. And now they're basically in these little four or five-inch squares, and they're, each one of them is in there because they can't touch each other because if they touch each other, they will ignite. So along with the typical problem that's happening in Fukushima where uh, in the fuel pools they have touched each other and they have ignited, we have four times as many as these things were originally made for. They've remodeled them, the tanks, to get more and more and more in because they had no place to put them. So our group, the Coalition to Decommission San Onofre, is not going to settle for a 300-year nuclear waste dump because while we have lessened the risk to have a nuclear accident during the running of an operation of a nuclear power plant, we still have the same risk of the fuel pools have always presented to us. So our risk factor with tsunamis and, and earthquake zones and uh, terrorist accidents haven't really diminished, but a very small degree. Is there an equivalency of radioactive material is stored on the facility in terms of, say, atomic bombs? 
Oh, yeah. I, I have heard the figure, and I'm not quite sure. But we have at least 20 times the material of both nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan in, in 1945. We have five times the amount of, of spent fuel rods that Fukushima has. Oh, that's just terrifying. So let's get to some of the action that is being planned. I mean, that's that's stupefying information. But obviously the activists in Southern California who were active for so many decades leading up to this win of shutting down San Onofre are not stopping and, you know, wiping their hands and walking away. What is the current arc of action that is taking place? Currently, we started, as I said, we started the uh, coalition to decommission San Onofre. We're working with the PUC to lower costs to the ratepayers and not let them be gouged, as Edison is trying to do already. The second point of action is that we are in the process of forming a committee, a citizens oversight committee, to watch the decommissioning process, including the financial and the safety aspects of dealing with the nuclear waste out there and the decommissioning of the plant. And then the the third thing that we're doing, because we've discovered that we had this much more dangerous and much more radioactive nuclear waste there, is that we're going to be having a uh, symposium about nuclear waste and the decommissioning process on October the 19th is our tentative date. Anything that I will tell you in this interview, we are still in the process of planning and coordinating this event, but we... We basically have an event that's probably going to go from 10 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and we will be having three of the top people in the United States, actually in the world. People that have been invited thus far is Marvin Resikoff. He is confirmed, and he is a senior associate at Radioactive Waste Management Associates and an international consultant on radioactive waste management. So he's going to be there. Who else have you asked? We're waiting for confirmation from Arden Makanjani. He's a nuclear engineer, and he's president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, one of our top people, one of the international top Both of these people are known for thinking out of the box. So if there's any new ideas to come, we're hoping that it will come from these two guys. We've also invited Arnie Gunderson to lead the discussion about nuclear waste, and he, of course, is a, a nuclear engineer who has worked in the industry for, I think, at over 77 nuclear power plants, and he has a group called Fair Winds, and he does all types of work on nuclear issues and does testify in court as a nuclear expert. He used to actually make, manufacture the, the racks, put the, the uh, stent rods in the field pools, so he knows extensively what's uh, at San Onofre, and... Um, He'll be leading the discussion on the decommissioning part of the conversation that afternoon. This sounds like an unprecedented gathering of individuals to discuss this issue. Has there been any high-level symposium or seminar or anything from our side of the table on the decommissioning process and nuclear waste? Well, certainly there have been many people over the years that have been working on the uh, nuclear waste issue. And they've done a lot of good work, a lot of hard work uh, has gone into it. But unfortunately, like many things in America that people work hard on, the harder they work, the less people seem to notice sometimes. And so with the closing of four nuclear power plants in the last four months here in America, we now have four nuclear power plants to decommission. 
So we think this is the prime opportunity to first make the NRC set up and listen because they have four nuclear power plants that oversee the decommissioning of uh, as also enough time has gone by that it's time to be thinking about the future of nuclear waste. And we think that these people can start this conversation in such a way that it will be able to take off across America because all of America's nuclear power plants are aging. And this is going to be happening more and more. And I can tell you as an activist, I was certainly aware of the nuclear waste issue as a long-term problem. But until you start decommissioning one and you start finding out the facts of what was really there and what they have allowed to go on rather quietly and see what's in your backyard, people are going to be just as upset as I was to find out. And I thought I was well-informed. So people are going to be shocked and surprised. And this is there's no better time to get this information out to not only our community, but all communities that have nuclear power plants. And we think that this type of seminar needs to be taken to every nuclear power plant in the nation and let people know what is going on, what's been used. I mean, we've even used the MOX fuel here. They used it, they tried it, they did an experiment, and they moved it out. But the question has to be asked, how did they move that out? Because I didn't think it was legal for them to move it out. So that's another part of our research that we'll be asking the NRC on September 24th at their first decommissioning meeting here in San Clemente. Certainly another group where it's crucial that they be made aware of this event are reporters around the country so they can get the background information to understand what the issues are. The event will be taking place in Southern California. What steps are going to be made to make this information available nationally? Is there going to be live streaming? Will you post on YouTube? How is it going to be disseminated? The facility that we rented has the ability to live stream. So we will be having at least two people record it as it happens, but we will also be putting it out on live stream through the building that we've rented uh, through its facilities. So you should be able to watch it live. And we want everybody to take that information and use it and put it out there. If there would be a way that we could support you, this is my traditional question on nuclear hot seat, but what can we, the public, do to support this symposium and help move it forward and help make it the success that it deserves to be? Certainly by the time many people will be hearing this interview, they will be able to make a PayPal donation. For them to check to see whether that's available, where would they go? To the Peace Resource Center of San Diego website, which I don't know offhand, but I I think you can probably Google it just like that. And then also the uh, Sierra Club Los Angeles chapter will be setting up something with a PayPal option for Sierra Club members as well. Also, Citizens Oversight Committee is part of the coalition, and they will also have an option on their website. I think San Clemente Green will have an option uh, on their website as well. So in other words, there are going to be a lot of online ways for people to donate. What I ask is that you get those sites to me so that as soon as they're ready, I can put them up on the website, and I will link them with this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, which is number 113. So if people are listening to this anytime between now and October 19th of 2013, all they need to do is go to nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Just scroll down to episode number 113. And you will find all the links 
to donate to this very important event. We certainly need a lot of help because our budget for this event is $9,000. That's what it's going to take to get everybody here back home, fed, rental of the building. So we have some fundraising ahead of us. Gene, bless you and the others for putting this together. This is an important next step in us understanding what we face to do away with the nuclear dangers that we are already facing. This is such an important meeting for Southern California and all of the nation, actually, uh, with power plants. I would would add to that the entire world because there are nuclear reactors around the world that ultimately and eventually will be facing this. You know, the one thing that I've learned that come home to roost more than anything is that we have to stop all the nuclear power plants because we have so much of this waste on hand. And what people don't know is that we have now invented waste that's twice or more, several times more than twice, as radioactive as in the past. And all of that has to be taken care of. We have to find a resolution for this. Because in California's case, both of our reactors are in uh, earthquake and tsunami zones. So we cannot leave that nuclear waste here. We are going to have to figure out a place to put it, a time to move it, and it needs to be moved and put into the ultimate place all in one move. We cannot move it twice. We need to only move it once. So we need, as a nation and as a world, to figure out what we're going to do with this stuff and then stop making it and go green and start using renewable energy. And, of course, we're going to have to figure out how to pay for it in the process, too. So too cheap to meter, my ass. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was was my comment. I said, now, now... San Clemente, Southern California, you're going to find out the true cost of nuclear energy and it is far more than the rate that they charge you while the meter is running. Gene, I want to thank you for making yourself available. Gene Stone, a resident organized for a safe environment, who is one of the organizers behind the decommissioned San Onofre and ongoing dangers of nuclear waste symposium that's going to take place on October 19 in Southern California. Gene, thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Gene Stone of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment and the decommissioned San Onofre Oversight Committee. When a link is created to information about the event taking place on October 19, we will have it available on our website. It's not there yet. Now, believe it or not, there are still naysayers out there insisting that Fukushima radiation is not and never will be a problem for those of us here in the good old U.S. of A. You'll be hearing more and more about this as the horde problems in Japan keep getting bad enough to actually show up in mainstream media. Gotta have those counterspins in place, just in case the media is paying attention. So, for our second interview, it's not exactly an interview. We're going to be hearing from Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health in a presentation he did at the Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Disaster. This symposium was produced and sponsored by Dr. Helen Caldicott and Physicians for Social Responsibility. It was held March 11 and 12 of this year in New York City. Joe talks about the gaming of the scientific system, the difficulty in finding accurate statistics upon which to base studies, and how none of that stopped the discovery of the disturbing, if invisible and completely unreported upon, impact of Fukushima and other nuclear accidents on the American public. My topic is going to be about the 
article that was published five days ago in the Open Journal of Pediatrics about the changes in newborn hypothyroidism uh, in the United States after Fukushima. But first, let me give you just a 30-second thumbnail about the group I work with. Radiation Public Health was founded in 1989. We are an organization independent of government and of industry. We consist of health professional scientists, and we work with citizens, and our mission is to publish medical journal studies and to present these findings to the public on the health risks of exposure to fission products. Uh, to that end, we have the one I'm talking about today will be number 31. Uh, we have a 32nd coming up later this, uh, this month. Um, there's no, no stopping here. And we've also done eight books. most recent one here is called Mad Science, published by OR Books uh, last fall. And I urge you all to go online and, and take a look at it if you're interested. Now, before I go into the actual mechanics of, and results of the study, I think it's very critical, and, and Steve Wing here um, began to point it out. Very, very tough to follow a speaker like Steve Wing, but I'm going to give it a whack. We have to understand not just the X's and O's of the research we're doing. We have to understand the context of which we're doing it. Okay? Yes, there is challenges. There are challenges in calculating dose. Not calculating an exact dose is impossible. The best we can do is, is an estimate. Um, yeah, and there are challenges in um, collecting uh, data on harm on changes in health status and changes in disease and death rates for, for a variety of reasons. So, so these are things that we have to deal with. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that the greatest challenge that we in the research community face is one of corruption. Corruption of the objective scientific method. Okay? From the very beginning... From the, literally the, the second that the Fukushima meltdown began, there was a rush to judgment by a number of people and organizations in authority. The Japanese government, TEPCO, uh, the IAEA, the World Health Organization, to absolutely minimize this disaster, which everyone acknowledges was either the worst or the second worst disaster in, in nuclear history. This was not some s small leak uh, near, near a nuclear plant in, in some isolated area. What the rush to judgment is, is the people immediately jump to the conclusion that these doses are very, very low, and very small amounts get in people's bodies, and that there is no way that humans can be harmed, or the harm is going to be very, very minimal. Assumptions like this absolutely make hash of the, of the scientific process, of the objective process in, in examining topics like this. The worst thing about it is some of these groups are very high profile. All right? They report this information to the media, and the media reports it to the public. They report it again and again, and the public begins to believe this. Okay, even before any studies are done. They're, they're, in fact, I'll, 
I'll even say there was there's one comment by a gentleman by Dr. John Boise from Vanderbilt University who said not only are the doses were are so so low, there's no way any epidemiological study could detect any increase in any disease from, from Fukushima. So in other words, put your pencils away, everybody. Don't don't do any studies. It is up to us in the more objective areas of, of, of the research community to stand up to this. We need to, first of all, conduct studies immediately, as soon as we can. We need to use whatever data we have, even though it's going to take decades and decades to really find out what the full meaning of, of, of Fukushima was. We have to start now. And most importantly, we have to get this information out into the public so that they understand we're not dealing with a small leak here. We're dealing with a, an extremely serious situation. The article we did is actually our second article on Fukushima health effects. I'm the co-author with uh, my colleague, Dr. Janet Sherman, who is an esteemed internist and toxicologist. We picked the topic newborn hypothyroidism. And for those that don't you who don't know, hypothyroidism is a condition where the um, level of thyroid hormone is very low and the gland is underactive. When this occurs in newborns, it can do great harm to any physical and mental development. It's screened for by every state in the United States for the last several decades to, to identify these people and to put them on thyroid hormone immediately to, to avoid some of these these terrible consequences. Two elements made up our paper. Number one was dose. Again, no, no such thing as a perfect dose. But we used uh, EPA data on what we call gross beta. In other words, all radioactive elements that emit beta particles, including uh, radioactive iodine, which is very, which attacks the thyroid gland. And we also used whatever the EPA data came up with on iodine-131. This was very poor. They only had something like 77 readings of I-131 in precipitation until they, two, two months later, they said, we don't need to, to uh, accelerate any monitor. We're going back to once every, every six months, which, was, which is just a, uh, a, a terrible, terribly poor decision on their part. We know hypothyroidism is something that's sensitive to radiation, to, to iodine. We've seen it before, and we've documented it in our paper. Uh, experiments on rats years ago, people in the South Pacific exposed to atomic bomb fallouts, um, people uh, living downwind from Three Mile Island, and after the Chernobyl accident, all showed in increased levels, uh, rates of hypothyroidism. And we also know that the fetus and the newborn are far, far more sensitive than adults to a particular dose of radiation. So, so this, not to mention the fact that we didn't have much data to choose from at this, at this early date, we feel hypothyroidism is, is a good disease entity to start with. Unfortunately, I had to call up all 50 states, uh, newborn screening programs. I yearn for the day when this country is three states instead of 50. 41 states responded. We found that the five states on the West Coast and the Pacific, California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, and Hawaii, tended to have the highest 
levels of not just gross beta that we found, but other uh, researchers have found high levels in kelp and in soil and, and, and air as well. So we compared the changes, the 20 to 10, 2011 changes in the cases of newborn hypothyroidism for these five states versus the rest of the country, the other 36 states for which we had data. We found the following. We found that in the first 15 weeks after the fallout from Japan arrived in the United States, the number of newborn thyroid, hypothyroid cases increased 28% on the West Coast. And for the rest of the year, the last nine months, increased 16.5%. This is compared to the rest of the country in which we saw a 3% decline. The differences are statistically significant, although we do point out in the article that these aren't a huge number of cases. In, in a single year in the United States, something like 2,000, 2,200 or so uh, newborn hypothyroid cases are, are detected. I'm going to get back to why this is important. This study is, is certainly not an ending to the research effort for Fukushima. It is very much a beginning. It is a very basic study, all right? But we make very clear that not only are there limits to this study, which any good author will do, but there are things we should be doing uh, in the future. More studies on thyroid conditions, such as hypothyroidism, and more studies of other conditions of the fetus and the infant, stillbirths, infant deaths, perinatal deaths, birth defects, uh, cancer in, in infants, low-weight births and premature births among them. These 2011 data haven't been published yet in the U.S., and the, but within the next few months they will. And again, we need to use these and conduct studies. We need to publish them. We need to, we need to do it promptly. And, as I said, we need to bring it to the public. And this is just the United States, by the way. I mean, the, the same sort of thing should be going on in Japan, and we're looking into ways to work with Japanese researchers to, to do this kind of work. You know, it's very, very easy to forget what we're, we're, we're studying. I, I find this uh, every so often I have to remind myself of this. I get very caught up in my pencils and my calculators and, and my, my papers and, and so on. We're talking about human beings here. We're talking about vulnerable fetuses in, in, in pregnant women. We're talking about infants and young children and elderly people who are, whose immune diseases are failing and people with immune conditions and people in general. And these people have been harmed in Japan and near Fukushima especially, but in other countries as well. They have absorbed these poisons, and we need to, to, to remember that because... Especially if we're seeing hints that low-dose radiation in the United States here may, may have harmed it. We um, are looking at the possibility of all 104 reactors in this country having the ability to do the same thing. Not just with meltdowns, but with routine emissions. We've seen this happen before, and uh, Steve mentioned this on Three Mile Island. Within 12 years after the accident, there were no medical journal articles that were published on cancer before and after the accidents. Okay, It wasn't until 12 years after. And by that time, 
31 articles have been published in journals like Psychosomatic Medicine and, and Trauma and Stress. 31 of them, all dealing with Three Mile Island and all discussing the stress issues. The, the silence was deafening. Finally, a group from Columbia University put out a study. They found that near Three Mile, within the first five years, the cancer, number of cancer cases went up 64%, and they concluded that radiation was not linked to it, was not linked to this increase, it, and they suggested stress. And that, several years later, Steve Wing and his colleagues in North Carolina put out a wonderful paper uh, showing just the opposite. Um, but by then, it was 18 years after the accident and the mantra, nobody died at Three Mile Island, nobody died at Three Mile Island, nobody died at Three Mile Island, was heard again. And it is still heard today by, by people in authority. Same thing happened with Chernobyl. Soon afterwards, when they, uh, the, the firefighters got rid of the fire and, and covered the damaged reactor, 31 liquidators got absorbed high doses of radiation and died very quickly. And boy, if I had a dime for every time I heard the, word, the number 31. Only 31 people died at Chernobyl. Only 31 people died at Chernobyl. And this is while you know, mass suffering was, was being reported in the Ukraine and, and Belarus and Russia and, and, and elsewhere. And it wasn't until 2009 when this terrific book by Alexei Yablokov, who's one of our speakers here, was put out. His estimate, based on 5,000 reports, was 985,000 deaths worldwide. That was nine years ago. He just told me at, at the break that the number has grown ever since. So that is my final word to you. We need to be vigorous as a research community in getting these studies done with using whatever data possible and getting it to the public. Otherwise... As Santayana said, we're doomed to repeat history. Thank you very much. Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health. Their website is radiation.org. You can tell they got that URL a long time ago. Our ongoing thanks to Dr. Caldecott and her right-hand woman, Molly Lightfoot, for all the work they did in putting together this crucial symposium. The full symposium is still up. And it is a brilliant resource for anyone wanting to hear directly from our top experts, doctors, researchers, epidemiologists, oceanographers, nuclear engineers, people with statistics and footnotes. You'll hear from all of them about the real situation at Fukushima and with radiation. And we will put a link to that symposium up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first, I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the nuclear news you won't be getting anywhere else except maybe King 5 in Seattle. But even they don't cover the range of nuclear news you have heard here today, along with radiation protection tips, activist advisories, numbnuts of the week, the NRC doc report, and so much more. So if you like what you hear, or not exactly like it, but at least appreciate gaining access to this information, we would really appreciate a contribution. Go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down on the home page, and click on the big red donate button. Then follow the prompts, you know what to do. Your sharing of energy in this way will go a long way towards keeping Nuclear Hot Seat alive and well and kicking nuclear butt. Before I give you the radiation protection tip, 
Note that I offer what follows as information only. I do not represent myself as a doctor, a nutritionist, or any kind of licensed or certified health professional. I'm just a girl who is motivated, did research, and shares information of interest that I've uncovered. Before you even think about instituting any of these diet or lifestyle changes, check with your personal health care professional and get appropriate guidance. What you do with this information is up to you. Take responsibility, just like your mother used to say. So this is about internal protection, protection from internal radiation, which comes from particles that you may have breathed in or swallowed, or perhaps you had an abrasion on your skin and it got in that way. After Chernobyl, children in Ukraine were given apple pectin to help remove radiation from their bodies. It proved to be remarkably effective, reducing radiation by over 60% in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Trying saying that five times real fast. Apple pectin is a simple, inexpensive protection that can be added to juice or smoothies. A good amount for an adult might be a teaspoon per glass, but again, check with your advisors and let them guide your process. It's also available in capsule form, and these may provide a more convenient way to take the pectin. When you do, always, always drink a lot of water because they'll soak up liquid and bulk up, and that's what moves it out of your body, but you need the water so it doesn't create problems. Now a few activist shout-outs. A reminder that the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAN, F-F-A-N, has a food petition up with the FDA. You can Google it or find a link on the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Group Facebook page or at NuclearHotSeat.com on our webpage under Show 113. The Coalition Against Nukes has started a map on the CAN website that shows the locations of U.S. members who are available to help coordinate events, share local information, and engage in further coalition building. Check it out. And if you don't see your town marked on the map, go check in with CAN and make yourself that go-to person. It is at coalitionagainstnukes.org. Here is my funnest story of the week. You know about my call-out for a contact to Jon Stewart because I am his nuclear pundit for The Daily Show. Of course, I'm looking for ways to get this information to him, and that's what I've been saying for several weeks now. Well, last Saturday, I went to a half-day free seminar, and while I was there, I met one of the presenters who has worked directly with Jon Stewart as one of his top advisors. Now, this is a very powerful individual, And I am not assuming that he's about to share his power and his clout to get me through to Jon Stewart. At least not yet. But I gotta say, it was a thrill to hear him say that name in the front of the room. Kind of like a cosmic karmic sign, you know? But still, I cannot and will not presume that any one person is going to do the trick. So if you know Jon, if you know his mother, his third cousin twice removed who lives in Cleveland... Get the two of us together. Send any suggestions you have to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. So here's today's final thought. When does a leak stop becoming a quote-unquote leak when it hasn't even been plugged? That was the subject of a very perceptive analysis of TEPCO's recent admissions of its ongoing incompetence. Now, I would love to credit the writer of this, but the link that I have is not working, 
and I don't have the person's name. If you can help me identify the source, I will be honored to give this person credit because it is really quite brilliant. It reads, Is Fukushima leaking, or are the reactors wholly uncontained? Great language and catch on that one. It says, You may have heard that TEPCO announced a large leak of radioactive water. You may have heard that the cooling system in the spent fuel pools at Fukushima has failed for a second time in a month. This is newsworthy stuff, but completely misses the big picture. Japanese experts say that Fukushima is currently releasing up to 93 billion becquerels of radioactive cesium into the ocean each day. How much radiation is that? A quick calculation shows that Chernobyl released around 10,000 times more radioactive cesium each day during the reactor fire. But the Chernobyl fire only lasted 10 days, and the Fukushima release has been ongoing for more than two years so far. Fukushima has already spewed much more radioactive cesium and iodine-131 than Chernobyl. The amount of radioactive cesium released by Fukushima was some 20 to 30 times higher than initially admitted. There's also huge amounts of radioactive iodine-129, which has a half-life of 15.7 million years, 900 trillion becquerels of radioactive strontium-90, which is a powerful internal emitter which mimics calcium and collects in our bones, so one can easily say that the total amount of radioactive fuel at Fukushima dwarfs Chernobyl and could keep leaking for decades, centuries, or millennia. The bottom line is that the reactors have lost containment. There are not some leaks at Fukushima. Leaks imply that the reactor cores are safely in their containment buildings and there is a small hole or two which needs to be plugged. But scientists don't even know where the cores of the reactors are. That's not leaking. That's even worse than a total meltdown. So unknown but hopefully soon to be discovered individual who wrote this, thank you for pointing out more nuclear spin speak to guard against. To everything nuclear spin, 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 spin. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 13, 2013. Material from this week's podcast has been gleaned from so many different sources, including enenews.com, Radiation and Public Health Project, thank you, Joe Mangano, Japan Times, Asahi Shimbun, The New York Times, RT.com, NBC Nightly News, NHK, Voice of Russia, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, Kevin Campson Beyond Nuclear, Iori Mochizuki and his blog, Fukushima Diary, ABC.net Australia, and Formable.com and Lucas Hickson, The Corbett Report, Al Jazeera, WTVD-TV, WRAL-TV, Vermont Yankees Shut It Down Affinity Group, MSN News, TheHindu.com, TEPCO, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. Check out the blog page. That's where you've got pictures, we've got videos, lots of other info there. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, if you know a whistleblower who would like to talk, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This program is copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but... 
Fair use, guys. You have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. That's me, NuclearHotSeat.com, and the info at email. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call so much we're probably going to have insomnia for a year. So even if you're tempted, don't go back to sleep. <laughs>